0: Today's show is brought to you by Belvedere. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives recognized for quality, Belvedere was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Hopefully they win again in 2018. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. We are also brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo- code JJ. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Welcome to the JJ Reddick podcast, where I interview some of the biggest names in sports and culture, as well as give you an inside look at life in the NBA. Today, we have the co creator and executive producer of the hit Showtime original series, Billions, Brian Koppelman.
1: There's something about the way in which we are aspirational and it wants us to think we could be Bobby Axelrod, and also wants to allow us to forgive him because. He looks like he's having so much fun in this success.
0: Brian and I talked about his creative process, mental health in the NBA, and the ultimate billionaire power flex. That's coming up in a few moments. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode of the JJ Redick podcast. I've got a great conversation for you with Brian Koppelman. I am a huge fan of the Showtime show Billions. Um it's probably my favorite show on television right now, and, and season two, uh, last season, uh, was one of my favorite seasons of television ever for any show, and season three is off to a, a an awesome start. Uh, I believe we're th- about three episodes in, and uh, Brian was kind enough to join me and, and talk about the show. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about the appeal of the show and, and why I enjoy it, Brian's creative process. Uh, in creating some of the dynamics in, in in the show some of the characters in the show how he develops characters and plot lines uh, really fascinating stuff and then we, we talked about billionaires and uh, and some of the ultimate power flexes beyond just the the obvious cars yachts and homes um, on another note thanks again for sending in all your questions for my special mailbag episode I um, I got some really good feedback on that episode. It was a lot of fun to do. And shout out Tommy for co-hosting with with me. Uh, I had a blast talking with him. Uh, The 76ers right now, we are on uh, quite a streak. Uh, I think we just set an NBA record for most wins to finish the regular season going to the playoffs with 16. It's a very weird feeling. Uh, people, you know, first of all, people talked about our schedule lately, like we haven't beaten anybody, but we we did beat some good teams and you can only sort of play who's in front of you. Uh, also, I don't know if you knew this in the NBA, you end up, everybody kind of ends up playing the same teams. Uh, so the schedule tends to even out. I believe the first half of the year we had the hardest schedule or one of the hardest schedules in the league. And obviously down the stretch, the last 20, 20 games or so, it was one of the easier schedules and Uh, we handle our business. I've never had a winning streak like this in my career. I I think I've been a part of a couple double-digit winning streaks, but nothing like this. And it's just been a blast to play every night. The cool thing that has happened, you know, we've had – I missed Wednesday's game. Joel obviously was out. Joel's been out a couple times. Dario, I think, had to miss a couple games because of uh, an elbow injury. And we just kind of had this sort of next man up mentality – And everybody has played at a high level and contributed to this winning streak. It's been an incredible team-building, you know, three or four weeks uh, where we have a lot of confidence, a lot of chemistry going into the playoffs. And no one in Philadelphia, no one in this organization could have predicted, you know, five or six months ago that this team would be 52-30, and third seed in the East, going into the playoffs. It's just been a fantastic regular season. Having said that, you know, the real season starts now and we are going to lock in and and try to get this first round against the Miami Heat. All right, without any further ado, let's get to my conversation with Brian Koppelman, creator of Billions. I want to go back real quick. You and I exchanged emails about a year ago um, after I was on the Rich Eisen show. I noticed he had an Axe Capital mug. And my producer with my Yahoo pod, I guess knows you, Lou Pellegrino. So he connected us on an email. Yeah. And I got an email. I was actually looking through this last night. I got an email from you on March 23rd, 2017. Yes. Saying your Axe Capital gear is on the way.
1: You Should have had it. We and have I'm a new no, assistant. I never got I don't it. Have the same assistant. Now. <laughs> I never got it,
0: however, you just gave me a billion dollars. Oh, hat, you can so. get a mug too. You can but go yeah, shot, the, yeah. The axe, we were trying to figure I was gonna
1: give you, you one of these fleeces. I have one for you, but XXL is the biggest size. Can that no? I mean, I'm like a large man, not, a large, yeah, yeah, but you're very tall, <laughs> shorter. So, arms. we have so you'll okay. get this when we good. You'll have you'll have all the gear you want.
0: Uh, so I am, I am a huge fan of the show. It's actually my. It's, Truthfully, it's my my favorite show on uh, on television right oh, now. Oh, thanks man. And season 2 uh is one of my favorite seasons of any television show ever. Um I I really enjoyed it. Um and you know in, in doing some research for for this this talk um I couldn't find like where where you exactly got the idea for this show. What is the, the genesis of this show and the genesis of this idea?
1: Well, we'd been um Thinking about doing a show about hedge funds for a really long time, about nine years ago, we first started researching this. Uh, Dave and I had begun to think that the next big story in the financial world was going to be these hedge funds, like the next Wall Street. You know, Boiler Room was about the penny anti-stocks, and that's what Wolf of Wall Street was about. And Wall Street was about the big banks and traders. And we felt like hedge funds hadn't been told that the story hadn't been told. So we almost got a show going and then the crash happened. So we had all this research from, and then right before 2008, we almost had a show greenlit and then it wasn't greenlit about the world of hedge funds. And we had gone to like morning meetings at funds. And um, we spoke to a guy who the initial research point was someone who owned a private jet service airline. Cause we realized that dude would know all the hedge funders. And he then called hedge fund managers and said like, let these guys come by. And then our friend, Michael Karsh, who had a cameo in the first episode of this season had a, a very successful hedge fund. He owns juice press now, but he had a very successful hedge fund. And he let us in and gave us some really great guidance and direction. Then the crash happened. We kind of put the research away. And somewhere along the way, we'd also become fascinated by the prosecutorial discretion that U.S. attorneys have. People don't really walk around with the knowledge that federal prosecutors have a tremendous ability to decide what cases they want to take on and what cases they don't want to take on. And it gives them almost king-like powers because your fate can be decided by Capris by just their own sort of like um, whims. And so we had this note, you know, and then we started talking to uh, an agent friend of ours told us that Andrew Ross Sorkin was working on a similar idea. We had started to be working on this idea of hedge funds and um, U.S. attorneys. And so was Andrew. And we met and then the three of us decided that this was worth writing a pilot on spec. And so we then wrote we did fresh round of research through Andrew. We were able to meet with, um, many current hedge fund billionaires and we're able to then really build this story to tell. We wrote the script on spec and then we're able to, which means we wrote it without a deal in place. We wrote it just exactly the way we wanted it. The first episode ever of the show. And we sent that out to television networks and, um, Which gave us a bit of leverage because normally what you do is pitch a show, but we didn't want to pitch it. We wanted to actually express it fully so that someone, if they wanted to buy it, because it was, you know, when you ask about the concept of it, it would be hard in pitching it. You could get someone to buy it because of your track record, but to get someone to commit to making it, we felt like we had to really show them, wait, how are you going to make this thing that seems on the surface maybe like boring, right? Uh, How are you going to make it really compelling? and so we wanted to write it and show the way in which it was compelling because also we didn't want to have a clear hero. Most stories have a hero or a direct anti-hero. In this show, you really don't know and it's, you know who you should root for when and in fact you I wonder if, I mean I, I think most NBA guys root for Axe, but generally what happens to people is they switch. Um, yeah. and sometimes they're rooting for Axe and sometimes they're rooting for Chuck, and that was in place from the beginning too. We wanted to have two characters who neither of whom seemed like he was clearly the good guy. And then we want to put this Wendy character in there who um, certainly seemed from the beginning like maybe the only person to really clearly root
0: for. So you, so you write the, the pilot and you yeah. have all these ideas sort of expressed already, jotted down in your mind or on a notepad, like you have this full character and plot development in place. Do you have the, do you have the end in place? Or is the end based on sort of the feedback and the network and and what's going on
1: the network them. are great partners so um if people listen to my own podcast or have heard me on other podcasts like I'll trash anyone if I need to <laughs> so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that um the network were great if they weren't they're amazing and one of the great benefits man of of writing the thing at first so having a whole script was they were they were signing off on making exactly the show we wanted to make like our vision were aligned we 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 were um we were all clear about what the kind of show we were making was going to be from the beginning so they don't pressure us and, and stuff like that um david and i had a pretty clear idea of the endpoint i mean we know what the endpoint of the show is and we even really were able to would have been able to tell you the very clearly the endpoint of the first bunch of season but then We're free to, I mean, you were just talking about the, um, the play you run out of a timeout and I've listened to you enough to know, I don't, I don't need to use sports analogies with you. You could follow (laughs) whatever I'm going to say, but, but, but you just said, you know, we were going to run a play for me to shoot the ball. Um, but it didn't end up going that way. So like you have the play coming out of the timeout, you know, going into the second season, oh, this is where we hope to end it. But one of the things we like to do is we'll outline a lot. We'll plan a lot, but we are totally free if a better opportunity comes along, we'll take it. If we see a better way to tell the story or a way that we can get the audience leaning one way and then whip them, whipsaw them another way and it makes sense to who the characters are, we won't feel bound to our original idea. Because the main thing that happens is you you're, you end up in this incredible collaboration with this cast. And so you have to be willing to roll with that. And in fact, you have to love rolling with that so that by the fourth episode, in you start to be really aware. Of, well, I could I could go so deep in just the sports stuff, but you really <laughs> yeah. not no. gonna do it. But you know, you know who's a spot-up shooter and who needs yeah. the ball when they're yeah. rolling to the hoop. Like you just start to become aware of that stuff. And you and it's in a subconscious way. You know, um, if I had to just write a, a Chuck Rhodes scene at this moment, suddenly whatever I wrote would just sound like the way Paul plays Chuck Rhodes. Same with Axe and, and Damian Lewis you start shaping it and then they start amplifying the thing. And so you're, you're just going back and forth together, amplifying and deepening the whole time. So yeah, we know that we know and understand the general arcs, the reversals, the, the things that happen, but we are completely willing to change it if, if circumstances dictate that we change it.
0: I've always felt like the best coaches, that I've played for, the best coaches that I've seen always have an ability to put their their players and and really their best players in a position to succeed. That's to me is the hallmark of a great coach. I think I think Brett's one of those guys. I think Brad Stevens is certainly one of those guys. Um, you know, Doc gave me an opportunity uh, in L.A. And so what you're describing right now, in in many ways, the, the writers, the showrunners, you're you're creating positions and opportunities for these characters to develop and succeed based on these actors' strengths.
1: We're trying to, and I I also think about the way a point guard gets you the ball where you need it, right? Yeah. Great. I mean, the difference of playing with a really great point guard, even in a pickup game, Mm -hmm. like in a pickup game, if you're playing with with a point guard who really quickly figures out where you like to get the ball, even if you don't know it exactly. It just makes everything, for me, so much better. Do you find that it makes a huge difference for you or
0: not? Absolutely. I also think, though, that I'm guarded a certain way. And like if the ball is on the other side of the court and I'm in the opposite corner, I'm still... like My man's two feet from me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sometimes he's hugging me. I've been dealing with a lot of bear hugs lately when I'm coming yeah, they're not going to let you shoot. Yeah. Yes. And, and so sometimes it doesn't matter as much, but the, the thing I've always found when... I've played with guys like Chris and, and Ben now and Jameer in Orlando. They're, they're always aware of where I am and they recognize the patterns of, of where I get my shots. So, you know, whether that's in transition, like filling behind Ben, like he's always aware of me being there. And, and I, I, I always, I always kind of sense that. I always kind of sense that going back real quick. So the, the, the characters, the plots, those are sort of constantly evolving thing things when you guys set out to write a season are you are you intentional about the theme like is there a specific theme to each season because it seemed like with season two there was a a, a theme it if i was to guess on the season three at least so far this the the theme seems to be freedom and and what exactly that means uh season two for me was all about risk obviously and what you're willing to risk uh you probably know better than I do what the themes were, but, but you are intentional about those.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I don't, we don't talk about what they are specifically because I like the idea that people can watch it and they yeah. can decide, but yeah, I think Dave and I and our writers absolutely understand that the show is going to reflect what we're thinking in, about and feeling about some aspect of the world, the financial world, the political world when we're writing the show. And we put a thematic idea up on the board at the beginning of every season. And we're sort of prosecuting against, you know, we're, we are challenging ourselves to grapple with that idea the whole time. So we'll write an episode or we'll start to outline and we'll go back to the central thematic and we'll ask ourselves if we're dealing with it or how we're dealing with it or what the show is saying about it. But there are, and then within every episode too, something we'll say to younger writers sometimes when they'll do a draft is exactly, that's really, I love talking about this is we'll say, well, what's the episode about? Not the plot of the episode. What's the episode about? What are, what is it that's sort of larger than just the story that we're hoping the viewer will receive somehow? And so we don't overload that stuff. But it's absolutely something we're thinking about. And neither David Dave nor I know how to write something if if right from our first movie, which was Rounders, we're thinking about Matt Damon's character's journey and what it means. Like what's what is that guy trying to accomplish by playing cards? Or what is that choice between going to law school and being a card player really about for somebody who's 28 years old? Uh and so you, you, you are correct. I think any, any good piece of art, the creator of any good piece of art has some idea of expressing what they're feeling. Because right, theme is an intellectual, is sort of an, an, an intellectual articulation of these emotions that you're having as you process the world. And so one of the things I think is your job, if you're a writer, is to try to recognize what you're feeling and then turn it into um, a thought. We're check in, like, what am I feeling about the fact that we have a new attorney general and who that person's taking orders from? And that doesn't mean you're going to do an, a one-to-one analog. You're not, you don't want to reduce everything in that way. Sure, But you do want to be aware that, um, if the world shifts or if the world for your character shifts, then, then their purpose might shift. Or if their purpose is challenged, you have to figure out, well, what that means as far as how they'd be thinking about the world and what they would do.
0: What, what, is, what has been the reception of the show on Wall Street or, you know, in just in the larger financial world? Yeah. They, I mean, no, they love it. They love
1: it. <laughs> it's crazy. We weren't sure. I mean, a few things surprised us. Like we knew a bunch of stuff, but a few things really surprised us. I don't use the word humbled because I hate when athletes use it to mean proud and cocky. Which they always do. Like They're, I'm so humbled <laughs> by my success. No, you're not. If you were humbled by your success, you wouldn't be in a Bentley. Like, but I, I, mean, so- I need to interrupt you
0: for a second. I'm sorry. My, I laugh every time this happens. So somebody will like um, have a career milestone, right? And they'll, they'll be like twenty thousand career points, and they'll post a little, you know, I, it's not a meme or it's like a it's artwork, right? Yeah, of themselves in the uniform, twenty thousand career points, and and they'll they'll write humbled. Are blessed, and yeah. you're like, no, dude, you accomplished something. Like, what? Yes, that's not, you're, that's not not, you're, I, you're not humble. You're actually bragging right now. That's that's what what did. Did. So, uh, yeah, the opposite that's, of humility.
1: So, I'm not going to use the word <laughs> humble, but uh, we are sort of incredibly pleased and thrilled by the fact that people yeah. dig the show. The first year, hedge fund managers wanted to, when the first the show was first coming out, they wanted to distance themselves in public from the show. A bunch of them still spoke to us. But then when the show hit and they saw that Axe wore these Henley hoodies, Henleys and hoodies <laughs> and sneakers and was cool and played by Damian Lewis and said funny, cool shit. They then started, a bunch of them started telling people that the character was based on them. So you would meet a guy at the U S open before the first season. He'd be like, I'm not going to watch that show. I don't, and then you'd meet that guy between the first and second season. And they'd be like, you know, that character's based on me. <laughs> you know, I'm really Bobby Axelrod." <laughs> and, um, So they love the show. And one thing that has surprised us in a certain way, although Damien is so charismatic and so compelling as an actor, is that there's almost nothing Bobby Axelrod can do that's so despicable that people won't root for him. Now, they also root for Chuck Rhodes, Giamatti's character. But one thing thematically that we've been interested in from the beginning is how come characteristics like charisma, intellect, wealth stand in for true character to people in America, that we confuse, we confuse those attributes for quality of a human being. And so we wanted to put somebody on screen who embodied a bunch of that stuff to make people question their allegiance to folks like that in the world. And we saw, you know, we figured, okay, this was the idea in the first six episodes, Maybe you would wonder if we loved Bobby Axelrod so much that we weren't going to show you that part of the way he earned that money was illegally. Now, in the very first episode, we say the uncertain, certain thing, and it's clear that he gets insider information. But okay, someone might think that kind of inside information, uh, there might be a free market libertarian and think that shouldn't even be illegal. But by episodes 9, 10, and 11 of the first season, you understand that Axel do almost anything to profit, not just to save his ass, but to profit. And yet people still rooted for him. There's something about the way in which we are aspirational and it wants us to think we could be Bobby Axelrod and also wants to allow us to forgive him because he looks like he's having so much fun in this success.
0: As you're describing that, that like literally my first thought is Trump, his base, you know, there's an appeal to, uh, you know certainly his wealth but also um i think there's some people who probably <laughs> you know are are not turned off by his, these alleged affairs or whatever they're like oh he's that you know it, it's a topic for another day but there is a, a a larger conversation to be had i think about how we define masculinity and how that is changing and there's an old guard and there's a new guard and 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 i think trump would probably fit in that old guard of of how we look at masculinity.
1: I suddenly just flashed on Calipari and Patino. And these people who are, as opposed to, you know, Coach K, <laughs> who's a different mode of, yeah. like who's um, doesn't have those characteristics, but there is something about Calipari or Patino going into somebody's living room yeah. in the middle of the country with like the that confidence and. the rings on their fingers and that kind of charismatic uh, confidence that even when we know we're being sold a bill of goods, right? I mean, ever since the thing happened with Patino and the woman, like we, we all understand what he is. And, but what we decided was we don't care as a culture. We don't want to hold him to
0: account. uh, Are you by any chance a Duke fan?
1: Well, I, I, you know, did you know that I sex? It's my, my worst characteristic is I root for two. <laughs> I think that's like oh, one that's of the, so I good. might be like, that might be the, it's so, um, against so I, I, everything I, I, else I that I stand the, for.
0: The, the bill pod of, of why you like coach K, right? Yeah. Something about, some nice You wrote, wrote a nice thing. He wrote a nice thing your son. So, I have, I, this is going to sound terrible and I'm, I've not spoken publicly about this, but like, I sort of have an issue with this, this one and done thing that Duke is doing now. Um, because it's, not Duke this, it's not who we've been, you know, it's not who we've been. And, you know, like I, I, like I root for Duke. I've been a Duke fan since I was seven years old and I have a relationship with Grayson. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of have a relationship with these guys who, you know, coach used to say, you have to unpack your bags. And I'm not sure we're, we're unpacking our bags. And I'm sure the group was great. Has Grayson but- ever beat you at horse? No, no, <laughs> no, but like, would he put a letter <laughs> on you? Could Grayson put a letter on you? Just, could he put a letter on you? Yeah. He would put a letter on me. I'm sure. I don't think he would beat me. No, I don't think he would beat me. But, but, but going back to what I was saying, like, I, it's, it's hard for me to root for Duke right now. No, I don't want on. to say that. No, it's just, It's a different feeling because I think one of the cool things about about Duke and at least my experience and, you know, growing up, like Grant Hill went four years. Christian Leitner went four years. And obviously we live in a different time. I'm not saying I don't actually think people should go four years. Uh, If I could do it over again, I might not have gone four years. You know what I mean? But I think the thing thing that has always been cool about Duke is, is sort of this story that gets told from your freshman year your sophomore year to your junior year and you see these kids who become men because they're in that program and they play for Coach K. And I don't know, you know, you, you come to school in September and then, you know, you're stop going to classes as soon as the second semester starts because, you know, you're 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 preparing for the draft. So it's 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 a totally it's a different thing, I think. What
1: well, do you think high school kids should be in the NBA?
0: Absolutely. So Absolutely. that's the answer to the question. Yeah. The one and, let done, an the one and done thing to me has completely hurt college basketball. It's one of the reasons a team like Loyola Chicago with upperclassmen can, can make the final four. If you look at all these teams, the VCUs, the Wichita States, the Butlers, it's all been in the last 12 years since they changed the, the one and done role.
1: Well, the, the real answer to the Duke question is I'm a, I was always a St. John's fan and I could like name a lot of the St. John's players forever. They've been so bad. So now that Mullen is there. Yeah. Hopefully he'll be able to like. Didn't make St. John's
0: beat Duke this year? Into I a program. Yeah. Yes.
1: But he'll be able to make them in. Yes. Yeah, so like that yeah. game I rooted for St. John's. And yeah. in fact, the key grip on our show and uh, the Gaff are huge St. John's guys. And they came, they were very happy the next day. But I do think that Duke's always just been a different level pro for whatever reason. I can't help myself. Like I say, it's, it's a, I think it's a sign of a weak character that I root for Duke. But I do.
0: I want to clarify one thing real quick before we move on. I I always root for Duke. Duke is my team. No, no, no. I'm you said saying, the other no. thing. I did say it so was hard said to root the other for Duke. thing. So you said the other thing. I should cut that out of the podcast. Don't cut it out of it, the podcast. I'm not gonna cut it out. Because I heard I'll you say it by my words. It is different to to root for Duke now. It's different. Not hard. Speaking don't. of hard, so one of the things would uh, I watched the show.
1: I mean, you know that's the lead thing in the Duke newspaper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, are, like so, thinking, like, oh, you are in
0: so much trouble. I'm thinking of uh, Debbie and Lindy, two of his daughters. They're definitely going to text me. Um, I'm going to get some hate mail from them. Um, so, so one of the things when I'm watching the show and and thinking about sort this world of uh this world of finance, um, whenever I watch a sports movie. Uh, I, I think it's really hard to not make the athletes uh, sort of caricatures of themselves yeah. and and sort of fall under these like really old stereotypes. And I'm always offended. I'm always offended by sports movies in some way. Um, so how do you balance the storytelling part? A character like Wags, right? In, yeah. in, in the show, who's a little over the top. How do you balance that while also... Not creating uh, just these these over the top well, characters yeah. that that aren't that aren't really representative of uh, you know hedge funds and 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 the sure. financial world as a whole.
1: Well, everybody says all the guys in the hedge fund world. And I say guys advisedly, because it's still that world is still so male dominated. And they all come up to us and say, "Um, you got to meet the WAGs in my fund. Every fund has a WAGs. And uh, I've met so many dudes who are like, I'm the WAGs. Or guys stop Dave Costable somewhere. And they're like, you're the spirit animal of Wall Street now. It's Dave Costable, who plays WAGs, is just this incredible actor. And so he makes it where, you know, if you give him one of those lines, he's just going to crush it. And he's become sort of like this breakout character over the last couple seasons where, um, as Simmons uh, and Mallory said on their podcast, they're doing this recapables every week yeah. now, recapping the show. And they, they were like, he could basically be the MVP every week of the of the show. You know, the first and foremost, the function of the show is to entertain. And so we want every hour of the show to be super entertaining. And one of the ways you do that is by having people say, clever, funny, fun things. And so he's just a great example of someone who can do that and always just, just always knock it down. He's the Vinnie Johnson of the thing, you know, and that he could just come in and heat it up and then go sit down back on the bench. So look, you, you, you want the world to be presented realistically. You want the trades to be real. You, you want the strategies that everybody is deploying on both sides to pass the smell test. So we talk to experts all the time. We have hedge fund experts. We have legal experts. We then have, you know, hedge fund billionaires who will answer our call and we could send pages to and say like, is this how you would do it? Or does this make sense? We have people on the legal side we can do that with also. So we're vetting that stuff out so that it's really close to reality in that area. We may, or we may learn what the exact reality is and then figure out how to compress the time because we have to do it in an hour. And then once you land the characters also in those first couple episodes, once the first episode, when Axe is talking to Ben Kim and Danzig and breaking down this trade that this character Kazowitz made, and Axe does it in this systematic and incredibly impressively synthesized way, by the time you've watched the end of that scene, you believe Bobby Axelrod's a hedge fund manager. So once you believe it, then We can sometimes push it a little bit and you, but you know, well, that's just his idiosyncrasy as this character.
0: I recently had Ray uh, Allen on the podcast. Uh, He of course was in, he got game. And Spike Lee said that one of the reasons like he wanted to cast an NBA player in the lead role and not an actor. And he also used a bunch of other NBA players for the basketball scenes is because he wanted it to be as realistic as possible.
1: He could put a letter or two on you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> for Real. sure I'm just saying for sure. I believe that guy could put a still, letter or two on you still even still uh it's unbelievable do you have a do you have a favorite sports movie by the way
1: I mean yeah I, I will say that Rudy makes me cry every time I watch it I can't get through Rudy without crying can you yeah. can you
0: no no you, I cry in most movies though Like I'll, I'll cry and remember the titans as well but Rudy I think is good Hoosiers, Hoosiers
1: and Rudy would yeah
0: that. um Ru- Ru- Rudy may be number one for me for two reasons because I've talked about this before but Hoosiers uh, recycles plays. They just shoot them from different angles, and then they show them later in the game. And that once I learned that, it bothered me. And then Rudy also because uh, Vince Vaughn's cameo. I mean, he's he's great as as the, and John Favreau. Yeah, the two a, guys the are in the, is, in is the movie, amazing.
1: and I guess they became friends on that movie.
0: When you were on Bill's pod uh, recently, you uh, you and Bill talked about why why NBA players like billions. So you asked Bill, like, what, what are his reasons, right? So he said. It was a rich guy show, you know this idea of power. I think you mentioned that it was you know the NBA as a monolith and that it, the players were going up against it. they were curbing our individuality. so I, so I, I agree with that, but that, that idea of this ultimate freedom and, and, and what that represents to, to acts. There's a there's a side I think that Wendy taps into, and that's the risk performance balance. Yes.
1: and that's great.
0: It's an interesting conversation, I think, to have right now because, you know, we have guys like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Kelly Oubre Jr., who are openly speaking about mental health issues for the first time, really. Royce Wright uh, from Iowa State, who briefly played in the NBA, has has been an advocate as well. I should mention him. But this is really a sort of new territory for us. I guess
1: Ricky Williams did it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: a lot, but I think he was basically... The year that he left, right? Yeah. The year that he stopped playing the first time. Like, I think he did it in
0: football. Mark Ripon. I don't. Did you see Mark Ripon's story the other day?
1: No, I like saw a headline, but I okay, didn't see it the was, story.
0: It's actually gut wrenching. Um, but
1: uh, and you guys made it. I think the ball players made it comfortable because the Rock said something this morning or yesterday about dealing with depression.
0: The Rock did. Yeah.
1: About wow. how guys don't want to talk about it, but he needs to talk about that he's had to fight through depression and all this stuff. It was great, really moving.
0: And I, so I but I think I think I, I, I've i seen uh, a couple of sports psychologists. Um, I I'm pretty open about the fact that, you know, for three years at Duke, I, I saw a therapist at one point. I had to go see a psychiatrist. I was fine. He, he told me.